We welcome you here and we uh, sing God's praises with you. Um, we have been in the book of First Peter. You can turn there. We'll be in chapter five today. First Peter is a book written by Peter, the apostle, the one who walked with Jesus. And he's writing this letter to the churches. Hey, brother. Good to see you. Amen. He's, he's writing to the churches that are far from the religious center, the spiritual center of Christianity, of Judaism. They're, they're far away geographically from Israel, from Jerusalem. They are far from the ethnic center, from the original people of God, the Jews. These are Gentile people. They are far from the political power of Rome. They are way far out there. <laughs> they, in that place, are being rejected by family and friends. They are being rejected because they, don't long, they no longer participate in the culture in the same way they did before. They don't party like they used to party. They don't, they don't drink and they don't interact physically, if you know what I mean, with each other the same way. They, they stand outside of that old culture and that old way. They, they don't go and sacrifice to the gods or, or, or give worship to the gods. They don't go to the same temples. They don't go to the same places. They have been transformed by the gospel and they stand outside of the culture and the culture looks at them crazy. And they reject him. That's not just happening then, it's happening now. And it's happening not just here, but across the globe. They are different. We learned in 1 Peter that that word different is the word holy. It's set apart. They're living out their holiness. And they're getting it from every side. And they're losing ground, it appears. Remember, this is like in 60, in the early 60s, 8060. Christian Jesus has crucified, resurrected 30 years earlier, less than 30 years earlier. This Christianity is blown up across the world. Looks like maybe that infant may not survive. That's the problem. Here they are in these places, and they're looking, they're wondering, is this nascent nation of God going to survive. And this could very easily put these brothers and sisters into a, a spiritual stupor, a glossy-eyed drunkenness that can't tell what's happening, what the reality of the situation is. But Peter, Peter is going to write to them and tell them this is the way that God looks at the situation. This is how you should perceive the situation. This is the truth. First Peter is a book to the church. So the church might understand how the good news of Jesus Christ applies and changes everything. It reminds them that the church, that they, they have, that the church has a hope, and that hope is secure. He reminds them that they have a future. And that future is secure. They remind them, he reminds them they, ha, they are a royal priesthood that needs to be lived out, that priesthood. They belong to the family of God. They are a priesthood of God. And so those words 
some 2,000 years ago are not applied just to the church in Asia, where, where is Turkey today, but here in Brenham, Texas, in Somerville even, amen, in Burton, in Snook. He has a word for us as the church today. First Peter has been this good news of Jesus Christ applied to every kind of relationship. Uh, our relationship to the government, if you remember several weeks ago, our relationship between uh, those who are in authority over us and in the workplace, uh, relationships between husbands and wives, and the, the preceding verses here to what we will be studying today is the relationship between the church, the elders in the church, and the rest of the people in the church. And, and within every relationship, he is saying there is to be this mutual submission the submission to the authority that God has placed. This good news calls us to a submission that requires a humility that upon first glance might actually doom men and women. It may doom us because we would be subject to others, that we might be trampled on and be underfoot. We might within that submission, lose sight of ourselves. There's real danger here. For if we are humble, if we are submissive to others, we are in real danger of losing our own personal dreams, our personal hopes, our personal desires. And it begs this question. If I am submitting the way that Peter is saying it should happen in the life of the church and the people of God, who's going to take care of me? I think it's a fair question. Who's going to take care of me? Am I going to get lost in all of this humility and submission? This word from God isn't about losing yourself but it's about finding who you were created to be. And today we hear from the gospel the answer to those fears. Prepare yourself for the word of God. 1 Peter 5, 5, second half of the verse starts like this. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. He cares for you. Today, we're going to look at several things. We're going to first look at the motto, the divine motto that we need to learn. The motto says this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You should know that phrase. You may even write it on a little sticky note on your mirror as you look at yourself. <laughs> God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, may we make this truth, this truth famous in our lives. God opposes the proud. Did you hear what I just said? Yes, sir. 
If you are proud, I'm putting it on you because it surely wouldn't be me. If you are proud, God, what? Opposes you. Let that sink in for just a minute. That seems bad, right? God, the creator, if you are proud, you have placed yourself in a position in which God himself will be against you. He will oppose you. This becomes pretty serious at this moment, right? My friends, to be opposed by God is a terrible thing. And it is a glorious thing. We were studying uh, Numbers 21 this week. In Numbers 21, the children of Israel have been rescued. We heard under the mighty hand of God. That's a picture that reminds us of God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And so they march out from that place and they come to, uh, we'll get to this in a minute, but they come to Mount Sinai, receive the Ten Commandments, and then they are moving out towards this land that God has promised as God's people. Before they, when they get there, they look out upon the horizon to see this land they were going to, to enter into. But they failed to go in because the spies come back with a report. The report says this land they're going into is just as God promised. He has a great grace for his people. But the the spies, 10 of the 12, say we can't go in. And two say we should go in. And the majority rules. And so they have to turn around and walk in the wilderness for 40 more years. Now on that journey, God still provides for them manna every morning. They have something to eat. Double the portion on manna the day before the Sabbath, so they don't have to collect anything on that day. So they're wandering in the wilderness, and we're talking about a million people in a barren land. They, they have no agriculture. Costco is closed. What are you going to do with a million people in the wilderness? I go camping. And when I go camping, I have all the stuff that our REI can provide for me. And I want to tell you, I hate it. The children of Israel have no REI and they're going out through the land and it is miserable for them. And in Numbers 21, the children of Israel begin to complain and say, oh, it would be better if we were in slavery in Egypt. Why did you move us from that awesome place to bring us camping? Our hope is so distant. It doesn't even seem like we're going the right direction. I'm adding a little here. But I'm thinking of grumbling. And the Bible says they then opposed God and opposed Moses. They opposed God and opposed Moses. Because they couldn't see how God was going to provide for them. They were not happy with what God had given them. And what does God do? But he sends serpents. And if you think camping is bad, wait till you get snakes in the camp, right? And these are poisonous snakes. It sounds like a bad B movie, doesn't it? Snakes in the camp. And so these these snakes are are biting people and they're dying left and right. They're sick and then die. 
And God says, now, Moses, what I want you to do is I want you to make a bronze serpent, put it on a staff, and hold it up. And for those who will look upon it after being bitten by the snakes, they will survive. They need to look at it. Seems like a strange thing, doesn't it? But as we learn that snake, we learn that pole. In fact, you know, when you look at medical signs, you see the picture of a a cross with a snake on it, that's what it's talking about. That's the healing that's happening in this story. And so God provides, they survive. But then we ask another question in that story. What if God had not done that? Like if in the moment you are one of the children of Israel and you're already complaining and then you're getting bit by snakes and you're seeing your loved ones pass away, you yourself are getting sick. You have to think maybe God is capricious. Maybe he's just mean and we should have left him at the mountain. We should not walk with him. But you see, if the children of Israel had not been bitten by snakes and be required to look on this provision of God for their salvation, they would have opposed God. They would have opposed Moses. They would either either left Moses or they would have killed him. And they would say, no more with this God of Israel. Now, imagine the children of Israel, one million people in the desert with no God. They would not exist anymore. There would be no manna. Do you think that Pharaoh was really excited about taking them back? How are they going to get across the Red Sea? Right? Not quite, I didn't quite think through this. So God opposed the children of Israel. And it was a terrible thing. But they turned to him, which was their salvation. It was a good thing. They were committing uh, the spiritual treason of pride. So, So when we worry, when we grumble, what are we really saying? We're saying we are not satisfied with God's provision, that our future is not secure. We're not certain that we are going to make it out of this mess. We are not pleased how God has provided for us. We are putting ourselves. Are are, are you like that, that you stay up nights going over the scenario in your head and how you're going to figure it out? And you've had, anybody had sleepless nights like that? Amen. AJ, you all right over there? Okay. How, what do I need to do to, to get myself out of this? Or I'm complaining, Lord, why would you put me here? It's not fair. We begin to be angry at other people. And what that's saying is that God is not on his throne, but I have to, I have to sit on the throne because God has not come through. I've got to manage this. I've got to work this out. I, do you hear that? That's pride. It keeps us on the throne. Worry is prideful. And so what does God say? Cast your cares upon the Lord. But he gives grace to the humble. Once we have a proper perspective, as we understand that we are God's created people, he has knit us together 
He not only knit us together and created us, he sustains us. This is the kind of humbleness that he's called us to. And we must have that kind of humbleness in order to receive the good gifts of God. 17th century Puritan pastor Thomas Watson wrote this. He actually preached this. He says this. Hopefully I'll preach it as good as he did, but I have an English accent, so I'm not so good about that. He says, till we are poor in spirit, till we are poor in spirit, read humble there, we are not capable of receiving grace. He who is swollen with an opinion of self-excellency and self-sufficiency is not fit for Christ. He is full already. What is he full of? If the hand be full of pebbles, it cannot receive gold. Isn't that nice? If the hand is full of pebbles, it cannot receive the gold of Christ. The glass is first empty before the wine is poured in. God first empties a man of himself before he pours in the precious wine of his grace. Till we are poor in spirit, Christ is never precious to us. God wants to give you gifts. He wants to give me gifts. He wants to give us grace. But God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And then he says, and he will lift you up. He will give you glory. All right, here's a trick question. Is it okay for us to seek glory? The sermon might surprise you on a sermon on humility, but the answer is yes. It's okay to seek glory. There's some men in here who can really appreciate it. There's something about men where we like glory. Braveheart, you know. Our name to be known throughout the halls. You see, it's okay to seek glory, but it's better to seek the one who is glorious, for that is where we receive the real glory. Amen. We often receive, look after a different kind of glory. Pride is also known as vainglory. Isn't that a great word? It's an expression of the inward pride. Vainglory is glory something that, uh, at, be, taking glory in something that's vain. Something that is really well assessed is useless. And so the glory we seek may be awards or positions or promotions, respect in the community so that we might show how great we are. But it's all vain glory because all of us are infinite or finite. So we are not all powerful. We're not all knowing. We can't fulfill the expectations of those positions. And so it becomes self-glorification. So what kind of glory do we seek? Woo. As they head up to Mount Sinai, Moses goes up. He stays in the presence of God for 40 days. And when he comes down, after being in the presence of God, do you remember what happened? His face is shining so brightly with the glory of God that everybody says, put a, put a mask over it. Cover it up. It is too much for us. As you come down, you are so bright, you hurt our eyes. 
You see, Moses was walking not in his glory, but he was walking in the glory of the presence of God. And so that becomes the kind of glory we seek is the glory of God. So I want to tell you this last week, these brothers who know the story of what happened to you, we have been walking around with the glory of God shining on our face. Corey's back there. Corey and, Corey and I were playing basketball up here on Thursday night. And so these, these brothers were running around and we stopped them for a minute. And we said, we got to tell you a story. We want to tell you what happened on Monday and Tuesday and how God provided on Wednesday morning, how God provided in this great way. And so we got to shout and tell them how good God was. Our face was shining, not because of our glory, because Corey and I didn't do really anything at all. But we get to share in the glory of God. That's the kind of glory that we seek as a people of God. Not because we are great, but we have our eyes and intentions on a God who is great. And when he is doing his great things, we just get to announce him. Ah, look at this. Look what he's doing in the community. Look what he's doing for these people. Look what he's doing in me. So it's okay not to have this kind of false humility where we talk about ourselves like, oh, well, I'm not good about anything. It makes me humble when I say that. I, oh, it's not me that did it. Let's see how humble I am. So I'm doing really good. No, no. We can say, yes, look how God has used me. I knew who I was before, but the God of all creation is alive in me. And he's doing these things in me to his glory. And so we glow. Amen. We glow with the glory of God. Kind of reminds us of old Moses. I got to tell you one thing about Moses, though. You know, when it talks about Moses, I think it's in the book of Exodus, it reminds us that the text says that he was, at, he was the most humble man in the whole generation. Did I tell you this already? No? Do you know who wrote Exodus? Moses. Okay, just to remind you. Come on, Moses, seriously. Like, you know everybody. Whew. When we look at this, God's opposition, God's gifts, we realize that our battle is not just within ourselves. It's not just with those authorities and people on the outside, but there is a real conflict on the inside. inside. We know that Satan is, is like a lion who is prowling about seeking who he may, he may devour. And it's hard for us to understand that it seems like some things are of a demonic sense. They come from the outside, but there's something also demonic or just our flesh that speaks against us and tries to get us drunk with the wrong understandings. When we were in the garden, story of the garden, we hear the interaction between Eve and the serpent. Do you remember that? And the serpent is trying to get Eve to eat from this forbidden fruit. And this is the line of, uh, of thought that he brings to her. He's basically saying, God is stealing from you. God is holding things back that you really want. After all, didn't he say? I mean, you know that if you eat from this, you'll be wise like God. God doesn't want that. He even, even mixes up the language. You remember he says, did not God say, 
you may not eat from any tree in the garden? She's like, what? No. But he, he's trying, right? He's trying to get to, for her to misunderstand the truth and to act on it. My friends, God does not steal from you. Amen. <laughs> Whoa. God doesn't steal from you. He is one who gives us good gifts. And because of our flesh, we still long for those things that aren't good for us. And we need to speak to those and say, God is not, by participating in this thing that brings me so much enjoyment, at least for the short term. We believe this lie. Isn't God holding back something good from you? You say, no, he's not. This isn't good for me. Humility means that we have a sober picture of the world. We have a sober picture of ourselves, a sober picture of who God and the enemy are. So he tells us to be watchful. You know, there's a kind of suffering that applies to Christians and a kind of suffering that applies to Christians, but it should not. We have learned that we should not, in 1 Peter, we should not suffer for the things of this, the, for the rest of the world suffers for. There is suffering because of the sin that has, that we have gone full steam ahead into. When we are bound to our passions, when we are, when we don't think clearly, when we don't evaluate, think, evaluate things correctly, we, we, we hear from the world and we think even to ourselves, we, we, look, we look at other people and say, why is she doing this or he doing this? Why, why is she drinking or, 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 or drunkenness? Why is, why is he dating so-and-so? Doesn't he know? Doesn't she know that person's no good for them? Why are they sleeping around? Why are they being destructive? Why are they being lazy, always angry, violent? With, you know, we can pick out the sin in other folks, the way they've gone back to those old ways. But are you aware of yourself? Can't you see that we are oftentimes walking in the way of destruction. And we are tempted to go back to that destructive life. For some of you, you've never left that life. And you have to wonder, have you ever repented? Have you ever turned to Christ? If you're still in that life, do you not know faith? Are you turning or have you turned from that old way? That old way will bring you short-term enjoyment, but long-term suffering. Do not be opposed to God. Finally, this life of humility. We read in in, uh, verse 5, it said, clothe yourselves with humility. The picture, this word clothes, is to put an apron on. And so it's really this great picture of service. Close yourself, put an apron on for service so that you, you look like a servant. Close yourselves with service. Yesterday, um, Maria uh, and uh, Christelle and I were at a, a, a funeral of a good friend of ours whose name is T.K. Condren, 98 years old. He's also known as Tex. Uh, and this brother... Uh, when I first came to Brenham, he started working with me at Faith Mission. He was old school. He's just like six foot nine. He's not that big, but he seemed that big. Broad shoulders. His hands were the size of saucers. And he said, now if we fight, it's going to be fast. 
I'm not going to last long, but you better be ready. And Tex would, uh, he, he was my treasurer, and he would write, he wrote everything out with a pencil. That's how old school he was. Kept all the books and no computers, just pen and, I mean, pencil and paper. And as he was, I mean, he was old 15 years ago. And I remember 15 years ago, one day he showed up and now, he, he, I think I have the same disease he has, you know, where your, your eyelids keep falling, you know, where you can barely see. Happened to my grandfather as well, happening to me. Soon, one day you'll see me just kind of, one day he was like that. The next day I see him and he has had surgery and his eyes are like this. Let me do it better like that. So he's walking around like this, you know, get those eyebrows out of his face so you can see. So, I mean, it's fun, right, for one minute to look at someone like this, but this is how he was the whole time. But it's a perfect picture of TK because of the people I've known, he had eyes for his neighbor. He provided food, he, he led, uh, helped out in ministry, helped out at faith mission everywhere. He was helping out, didn't meet a stranger. He always had eyes for his neighbors, both his geographic neighbors and to the least of these in our community, those who are suffering in need. And this old man, as Christelle was saying, she said, don't you get nervous going to these houses late at night by yourself? He says, what do I gotta be scared of? <laughs> That's better. What do I have to be scared of? You see, humility is lived out in service. He was a beautiful picture of that kind of service and a great example of a obedience in the same direction for a long time. And this is the mark of the people of God. We are to be those who are obedient in a long direction. Eyes for our neighbors. You can tell when service is really good, when humility kicks in, because you watch it and you go, huh, you ever seen that? I think about TK, his, his wife, although he was a very active, out of the house kind of guy. His wife d developed dementia, uh, Alzheimer's, and she was sick for five, seven years, right? And he stayed at home and nursed and cared. And as the pastor said, every day it seemed like a lose. He said, I, I lose another part of her. That kind of service makes you go, huh, there's something about that. Because it's selfless. It's powerful. It's glorious like our Savior. Amen. Miracle Farm. Their provision makes you go, huh, right? That service looks a lot like our Savior. When, when a Kenyan pastor that we'll be meeting with soon, I've heard this story before, spends his last shilling to fill up his bike so he can drive out and preach the gospel to a people in the bush that aren't even his people, and come home and have nothing to eat. And then another pastor reaches in his pocket and gives his last shilling to him so that his family can eat. You kind of go, huh, there, there's, there's something there, you know? It's this great picture of our Lord who, who, who had all the power of heaven 
and came down to earth and reached out to the widow woman. He healed the, the, the dead son. He went to the woman at the well. It makes you go, huh. He, he bowed down to Peter and washed his feet. It makes you want to say, huh. He goes to the cross and is beaten and dies a horrible death so that you and I might have eternity with him. It makes you say, huh. That's humility. That's the service of God's people. We learned last week that when you serve, when you show hospitality, do not grumble. And that got some of us, i got to be honest. Because what happens when you are doing this service? So you could actually be doing service and not be humble, which means God opposes you. So that's not good. Last week we were commanded to show hospitality to strangers and to our house, but to strangers. I do want to give a caution here. In this generation, we have to be careful. We are really good about taking care of our own. That becomes our focus. We spend a lot of time with our children and our people, but we have to, be, we have to recognize there are more people that we need to care for. We need to buck against the flavor of this generation to care for just me and my own, but to care for those who are strangers. He warned us not to grumble. Why did he tell us not to grumble when it comes to service, to hospitality? Because grumbling fails to recognize God's work in a particular situation. When we give and then we grumble, we are bemoaning the loss that we gave, right? The thing that we gave up, ah! They took up a lot of time when they're at my house. They always eat here and never bring anything with them. It isn't centered in a love for others. It, maybe it's being compelled by duty or for vainglory. So don't grumble. Be able, this is beautiful, be able to recognize God's work in your life in loving on that person. And say, mm, I don't know if you see it, but I can see it. God is doing something great here. So today we learned about the motto that you need to remember. God gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud. Then he says some commands. Serve, be sober-minded, resist, resist the devil. Make this phrase, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, make that famous in your life. You don't have to make a tattoo, but, but maybe you're written under the calluses of your hand. The dirt within your fingernails. The bags under your eyes. Jam missionaries, I want to let you know, you are in some good company here. I'll brag on these people. I've seen so many acts of service. I've seen this lived out in so many of your lives. Whether it's caring for an ailing grandparent or a parent, whether it's serving their children, moms serving their children, endless hours. Whether it's these guys setting up sound and coming up here early on Sunday morning, caring for those in AA and other places. I tell you, this, it's great to see the glory of God here. Amen, amen. I could just go on and on and on. 
but we give glory to God for he's done this. Listen to what the result is. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. We started with the knowledge that God will exalt you. We end with these things, restoration, confirmation, strengthening, and establishing. This word restoration means to fix that thing. It's like setting a bone. It's fixing that stuff that's broken. Do you want to live in the fullness of Jesus Christ, live in humility and service to others? Trusting God. And those things that are broken will be healed. You receive confirmation, the assurances of the truths that are, tr- that are in you. Second Peter, we'll see, says, make your, your election sure by increasing in these different things. And as you see God working in your life, you, become, you confirm that which is true. The Spirit of God is living within me, and he's working himself out. He will strengthen you, give you the ability to carry on and establish you in the foundation of your life. So this is especially for you guys. As you are doing some great work, probably the greatest work you may have ever done in your life. You're about to do it. You're about to get worn out. Make this, establish this as the foundation for your life. This is how I want to live my life. I want to live my life in service, relying on God in all things, because I realize that God gives grace to the humble and he opposes the proud. May that be your mantra this summer and for the rest of your lives. Amen. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word that inspires, encourages, saturates, and overflows in our lives. Lord, we look to you as the one who loved us so much that you would pay the ultimate price to bring us in a right relation. And Lord, we are we're thankful. We enjoy the glory that is seeping out through our lives. And we look forward to that day in which there will be glory upon glory in your presence. That we will glow brighter than Moses ever hoped to. And we thank you and we look forward to it. We rest in those assurances. And I ask for your real help for my brothers and sisters across this room and those who are watching online, Lord, that you would provide for them as you have promised, that they would look for you for their sustenance, that they would cast their cares upon you because you are good for it. And that's where they belong. So today we rest in you. Assured of those things that you promise. We bless your name. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.